Hello, hello. Nice to see you all. If this is your first time in the Japanese hall, you couldn't have picked a better day. Uh, it's great to have the sun shining through and uh, great to be in the room with you all. Um, and if you don't know who I am, I'm Scott, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, just uh, honored to stand before you bring the word of the Lord this morning. Um, this week I saw this picture on the internet. Uh, for those of you online, if you can't see it, it's a church uh, sign that says, life is cray cray, Jesus is the way way. And I always like these things, because I like to think about how it was made. Like, was it a rogue deacon? It's like, yeah, <laughs> the kids will love this one. Or, I, or was there actually a board meeting about this? I don't know. And then, it ended up on Jennifer Garner's Instagram account, and now Scott McTaggart is using it to introduce his sermon. And yes, I follow Jennifer Garner on Instagram. Um, but I also, after a good chuckle, uh, gave it some thought. Because um, it's not always a given that we know what we mean when we say Jesus is the way, or Jesus is the way way. Um, what is the way of Jesus? There's lots of different interpretations of this and lots of different expressions. And uh, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more simpler I become. And I think most would agree with this statement that the way of Jesus is the way of love. And in the past few weeks, we've been hunkering down in the Gospel of Luke, which is a biography uh, about Jesus' life. And uh, we've seen this a foundation of love that Jesus' ministry was built on. Before he did anything, he was baptized. The heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And that spurred him into his ministry of love for outsiders and edge people to bring good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the captives, give sight to the blind, liberate the oppressed. It's the type of love that motivated him to encounter a group of fishermen who had worked through the night with nothing to show and he blessed them with abundance. He showed up, showed them grace. Um, this love motivated him ultimately to give his life for us. And I thought this morning, let's start off on that foundation. Um, before you've done much today, or maybe you're an early bird and you've caught many worms, uh, that's great, congratulations. Uh, but if not, you're just strolling in. Let's, before we get into our day, maybe even to set our week off, to just rest in this foundation of love. And I wanna lead us in a bit of a litany. Uh, I call it, there's no title for it, but I like to call it the litany of love. Uh, this is by Scott McKnight. Just receive it this morning. No matter what you've done, not because you go to church, not because you read your Bible, not because folks think you're spiritual, 
And no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how vicious or mean or vile they were, no matter how calloused your heart and soul have become, God loves you. Not because you are good, not because you do good things, not because you are famous or have served others, but because you are you. To you, God has said yes, God is saying yes, and God will eternally say yes. God is for you that is you, the you that is you. Amen. And this week we're gonna continue uh, learning, reading, uh, viewing, uh, imagining Jesus' ministry of love. We're gonna go to Luke chapter six. If you have a Bible or an app, you can follow along. The words will uh, not be on the screen, but you can listen to my voice. And uh, Eunice has already read this for us, and I'll read it again. Luke chapter 6. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The word of the Lord. Um, reading that might spark some imagination to another part of the Bible where there's a similar passage uh, in Matthew, another biography of Jesus, uh, there's the Sermon on the Mount. And it also has a section similar to this. I'm not going to be talking about that one, but side note, in 2018, we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. Uh, if you want to hear what a pre-pandemic sermon sounds like, go back to 2018. If you also want to hear what Nelson sounds like in his 40s, listen to this podcast. The youthful energy is astounding. <laughs> um, but if we do a little sermon comparison, um, the, there's some subtle similarities, but also some big differences. Uh, Luke's version of this sermon is 32 verses, whereas Matthew's is 107. Uh, Luke's opening section is blessings and woes, whereas Matthew's opening session is just blessings, the Beatitudes. And the setting, it's a subtle but important difference. In Luke, it said he went down with them and stood on a level plane. 
uh, in a Matthew, and when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and they, he began to teach them. There's probably more that could be said here, but I think it affects how we read it. And I think the authors intended that. Matthew going up, Luke going on a level place. Um, today, so we're gonna focus on Luke's version here. And again, if you like outlines, we're gonna imagine this scene together. We're going to talk about blessings and woes, and we're gonna find, a, hopefully, an invitation for us today. Um, so Luke's version, uh, I wonder how, when we kind of sit with it, how we imagine the scene. Maybe you've read this before, maybe this is the first time, but what is Jesus like? What is the crowds like? Um, often there's pictures depicting it like this. Uh, next picture. Yes, sermon, I got a sermon. And people are coming to listen. And it's obviously white Jesus. Um, so that's interesting. And uh, this, is what the, this is what the text says. I think it's different from this picture. Uh, it says a large crowd of disciples was there and a great number of people from all over the following places who had come to hear him to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. It was maybe a little more rowdy. Crowds of people, not just attentive listeners like yourselves. Thank you very much. This crowd consisted of people with diseases. <laughs> Maybe, probably no masks. People troubled by impure spirits and demons. I imagine it would be chaotic. Like people growling and yelling and not being very good listeners. Uh, I imagine this today. Imagine if this crowd was here, how uncomfortable that would feel. Maybe that's a good thing to sit with. Our, would we be uncomfortable with that? It would, be, it would be different. Pretty different than this picture, a white Jesus teaching a crowd. Maybe more like this picture. <laughs> and then it says, looking at his disciples, he said. Uh, so there's crowds of people, different types as we already identified and imagined, but he looks at his disciples and says, and one thing I've often wondered about this is, who is Jesus talking to? <laughs> who, who is he talking to? There's tons of people around. He turns to his disciples and says, Matthew's equally confusing. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The disciples? Was it the whole crowd? Who's them? In Luke's narrative, we see a few different groups of people. That's why it's a bit confusing. There's the large crowd of his disciples. Then there's a great number of people, including the possessed and the people that were diseased. But then looking at his disciples, he says, uh, so who is he talking to? We know there were disciples and other people. It doesn't specify if this message was to the 12 disciples that he called to follow him, or if it was to the larger group of disciples. We do know that he turned toward his disciples. The word in Greek is methetes, which means student or pupil. So Jesus is speaking to his followers, and anyone else, I imagine, was welcome to 
listen in. I kind of like imagining this for what's happening here on a Sunday, that the liturgy, uh, the, the sermon, the, everything is focused toward uh, followers of Jesus. Those who have made a commitment to follow Christ, but anyone is welcome. I kind of like thinking of that. It's open for everyone, but we're not ashamed about this being for disciples or geared toward disciples. It's helpful to keep in mind, too, that the message is directed, Jesus' message is directed to those who have made this commitment. Jesus is talking to his disciples then, but probably and maybe, and I, I tend to believe across time, all nations, everyone who calls him Lord and seeks to follow his way of love. So what does he say? And this is... Uh, the first real time that he addresses his followers, he had just called them. Like in the, in the scripture, in Luke, it seems like moments ago, he called his disciples to follow him. And now he's in this chaotic scene and he says to his followers, and what is he gonna say? One, one pastor summed it up saying, this is the raw, unvarnished, faith-rattling declaration of the realm of God, what he's about to say. Another theologian said, the great sermon is the call to a radical way of discipleship that turns the way of the world upside down. So let's take a look at this. Looking at his disciples, his followers, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when everyone speaks well. Central in this text is four blessings and four corresponding curses or woes, and it's paired together, poor and rich, hungry, full, weeping, laughing, hated, marginalized, or liked, well-spoken of. First, he starts with blessing. I think it's important to note that first is blessing, and there's a bit of a pattern of first words, even in scripture, and if you've been around artisan, you're familiar with these first words. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, beloved, affirmation. First word of creation, it is good. First word in God's kingdom, blessing. Blessing, this word, makarios, a common word to you, that people use to congratulate people. Hey, I'm trying to think of a, a name. I wanted to say Mario, but that's not very... That doesn't fit. Hey, buddy, congratulations on, you know, the, your wife and kid or whatever, going to school. Makarios. Uh, uh, there's lots of different ways you can use it. Just think of different ways. <laughs> it's a very good illustration. Yes. Um, I was laughing because my family and I have been rewatching old episodes of Amazing Race. And uh, the amount of times they say blessed is interesting. And I had to stop and t like pause and tell my kids like, just so you know, I don't think God helped that team get into a cab 
because of, in front of the other cap team so they could get a million dollars. They're like, we're so blessed. Yes, we're, we won this leg. Blessings. Thank you, Lord. Just be careful where you mix up the blessing of the Lord. The Greek word makarios uh, can be understood in many senses. Favored, fortunate, flourishing, approved. Congratulations. God blesses. Blessings on you. God is with you. God is on your side. Or my favorite, you lucky bums. And this blessing genre wasn't a new one. There's loads of first century Jewish blessings. So Jesus isn't doing a new thing here. He's doing a new thing in a, another way that we'll get to. But um, just as an example, let's compare an old first century Jewish blessing that maybe or maybe not they would be familiar with found in Sirach 25, 7 to 11. This is a real uh, Jewish blessing. Uh, and in verses and chapters, just like the Bible, verse 7, let's look at this. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. A man, sorry ladies, you're disqualified, who can rejoice in his children. So a man with children, already more of, than half of you are disqualified. Uh, someone... Uh, it says a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. So someone who is killing it, maybe even literally. It's like the first century Hebrew version of the TV series Succession. And then verse 8, uh, happy, it says, is the man who lives with a sensible life, obviously. And the one who does not plow with an ox and ass together, because that's silly. Why would you? Why would you even? I mean, we all know. Oxes and asses. I don't have to explain it, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's so silly. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior. Again, someone who is at the very top of their game. Happy, it goes on, is the one, or blessed is the one who finds a friend, the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Someone's popular, probably has a bit of a following, invited to speak several places. The last part, how great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything to whom we can prepare, compare the one who has it. First, uh, joking aside, it's not entirely awful. I'm exaggerating to make a bit of a point. And the point being is that Jesus' list is different. The list of people he blesses and congratulates. The poor, the hungry, weeping, the hated, the excluded, the insulted, the rejected. Oh, doesn't that sound like good news? Yeah. Like in a, in a way, he didn't have to do that. Why did, he, why did he make it about this? But it's so consistent with his message. He even said in Luke a few chapters ago, I'm bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom to the captives, giving sight to the blind, liberating the oppressed. It's no secret that God shows preferential treatment to the poor, hungry, downcast, outsider, or as Alicia Keys says, this goes out to the underdog, right? Psalm 146, seven and nine, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. 
God seems to favor and even prefer those who are on the margins, the underdogs of society. I wonder what a list of blessings would look like today if we wrote it. Some of you who are well written, uh, Julia, I imagine you writing a list of blessings and that being really captivating. Can you do that? Sure, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Just on top of all your studies. Um, but uh, yeah, what would it sound like? How would you word it if you wrote, that was a joke by the way, you don't have to do that. Okay, <laughs> just to put you off the hook. Um, I found this uh, by Nadia Boltzweber. New Beatitudes for a Hurting World. Just wanna sit with this for a second. The words aren't on, up there, I'm just gonna read them, but listen to this modern uh, recreation uh, of Beatitudes. She writes, blessed are the agnostics, blessed are they who doubt, those who aren't sure, those who can still be surprised, blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction. Blessed are they who have buried their loved ones, for whom tears could fill an ocean. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are they who don't have the luxury of taking things for granted anymore. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who no one else notices. The kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables. The laundry guys at the hospital. The sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the clo closeted. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the un underrepresented. Blessed are the wrongly accused, the ones who never catch a break, the ones for whom life is hard, for Jesus chose to surround himself with people like them. Pe uh, blessed are those without documentation. Blessed are the ones without lobbyists. Blessed are those who make terrible business decisions for the sake of people. Blessed are the burned out social workers and the overworked teachers and the pro bono case takers. Blessed are the kind-hearted NFL players and the fundraising trophy wives. And blessed are the kids who step between the bullies and the weak. Blessed is everyone who has forgiven me when I didn't deserve it. Blessed are the merciful for they totally get it. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Jesus in his list of blessings communicates to his followers early on what his mission is all about, this type of blessing. You don't have to answer, but how many of you just needed to receive that this morning? Another version, maybe a little bit more disruptive, sort of an anti-Beatitudes, Kendrick Lamar, blessed are the arrogant, for theirs is the kingdom of their own company. Blessed are the superstars for the magnificence in their light. We understand better our own insignificance. Blessed are the filthy rich, for you can only truly own what you give away like your pain. Blessed are the bullies, for one day they will have to stand up to themselves. Blessed are the liars, for the truth can be awkward. 
Oof. I apologize for putting both next to each other, but uh, Jesus does. Blessings and woes. It's Kendrick Lamar's version here sounds a lot like this other list that Luke has. Woes or things Jesus is grieved by. And um, I was tempted to stop and kind of focus on the first part because it's a lot more fun. But I felt compelled to push into and to lean into, to press into a bit of this second part. I'm not suggesting everyone here is dealing with or struggling with these woes, but I do think that there might be one or two or all that some resonate with. His list of woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I can help but see these categories, and it, by the way, if this is your first time to Artisan, welcome. Um, I couldn't help see these areas, though, these categories of money, consumerism, food, entertainment, and reputations. All of these things that I think can distract us from a commitment to following the person and the, the, the life, the love, the way who is Jesus Christ. It personally, to be honest, it personally stung a bit. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can give this sermon to others. I need to give it to myself first. Uh, and so the preface is, I'm giving this to myself as, as well as it's to the room. And I think it's important to remember here in this place that this is aimed at followers of Jesus, uh, not the guests not people wandering by. Again, I don't want to impose judgment, but I suspect that some of these might resonate. Uh, I just want to go through uh, some of these here. Money, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. I was thinking about this. Uh, is Jesus talking to me? I don't have the nicest house. Um, we still rent here in Vancouver. Uh, but we are living in one of the most expensive cities in the world. I'm, I'm rich. I can easily get caught up in this lure of consumerism. Um, I know that I'm rich because I can supply comfort for myself. Uh, it's just a purchase away. I can manufacture comfort. So yeah, I think Jesus is talking to me. One author said, the rich, on the other hand, are disposed to making, dispo, disposed to make, take comfort in themselves and their resources, thereby, thereby finding it more difficult to trust themselves to the mercy and grace of God. Distraction. Food. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Um, I mean, I'm well fed. 
as you can see, like literally with food. Um, the dark side is, was that a thumbs down? Thumbs down. Oh, thank you, Tasha. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Wow. But I am well fed. Yeah. Um, the dark side of this for me, and I suspect others, is that I can go to food for comfort and satisfaction, happiness, or blessing. That was really sweet that you did that. Thank you very much. Um, and another place that I can easily manufacture comfort. Uh, we even joke about it, comfort food, comfort eating, uh, or emotional eating. Uh, I want to be careful here to I'm not downplaying eating disorders or people that struggle with this, but um, there's something here connected to our gut, desire, accessibility to lots of good food, yes, but resources, and I think the woe is that we don't make it a safe place to go every time. That it doesn't replace or numb the comfort the spirit known as the comforter can provide. Or maybe a better question is, what does, uh, what does for you will go hungry mean? Uh, I was, this one stung a bit too. There's a sense often in Jesus' teaching that he's talking about his kingdom coming now, but also talking about a future kingdom. So he says, you are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Uh, does this mean if we're well fed now, we'll go hungry in the next? Maybe it means that if we forget that there's a blessing in hunger, that there's desire in hunger, and that we're always fed and satisfied, filled or consumed, and we did that, uh, we can miss a blessing, I think, that is in hunger, desire, pursuit. Have you tried fasting before? Now, I'm dancing between actual food and, and things that we can consume, but fasting is really hard, but it's really good. Uh, I also remember in my early 20s going to uh, Zambia in Africa, and it was kind of a weird trip. We were building a, an orphanage. Uh, my grandfather had passed away and he was part of this, part of uh, financing this orphanage. So we did it in, in kind of in his honor, but we built this orphanage. While we're doing this, the people there thought it would be a good idea to take the Westerners to go see a really impoverished area of the city. And uh, it was just so weird, the whole thing, reflecting back on it. They're taking us to like, you'll see, you'll really see. And so I remember being like, okay, I'm ready to, ready, not ready to see this really dire situation. And we drove through the city uh, that was just tiny huts and people, dirt, bare feet. Um, it was, I would not want to live in those conditions, but I noticed one thing that I don't think they anticipated. Uh, I was actually, I was actually noticing how I'm actually the one that's poor. Uh, they, there was tons of people that were happy there. They were celebrating and dancing in the streets and they had nothing. And here I was a privileged white boy in my early 20s with everything. And they were more, I felt like more happy than I was. 
Maybe that's part of the blessing. I was struck by John's uh, depiction of Jesus and the woman at Jacob's well. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What are we feeding on? Entertainment, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. I kind of took a risk in this one, but I just kept kind of feeling this theme of entertainment and laughter. I love a good laugh, I love a good comedy, a sitcom. Uh, I can also, the dark side is overindulge, binge, and look for joy for that hit of dopamine. Uh, maybe one of the biggest distractions in our society. Mary Oliver says, attention is the beginning of devotion. So where are we giving, where are we giving our attention to? That's why Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, says, stay alert, keep watch, don't fall asleep. Keep, um, keep watch, I just said that. Um, this book by um, Nicholas Carr, The Shallows, uh, how the internet is changing the way we read, think, and remember, talks a lot about chipping away at our attention spans. And he also talks about this idea of the fourth screen. Over the last century, we've had new ways of introducing distractions from the newspaper to the evening broadcast radio where families would gather around one box in their house to listen to uh, the radio. Then the advent of the television, not just listening but watching, a bit more passive. And then not too much later was the third screen, which is computer, email, and then the fourth screen, different from computer, where you had to sit down and to engage, now it comes with you. Uh, and it's radically changed our society. One author uh, talks about this idea of capturing our attention, talks about fracking in uh, attention mining for reservoirs that were previously unreachable but now can be reached and harvested for profit. The fracking of our attention span. Um, I can't think of another category in life where people would applaud you for binging something other than TV. Uh, like you don't hear a lot of people saying, I'm a binge eater, congratulations, or I'm a binge drinker, way to go. Um, what are you doing this weekend? I'm just gonna binge a season of whatever. Uh, and that seems appropriate in our society. And the problem is that our attention is waning, slowly chipping away at our ability to stay focused. People finding it increasingly hard to pray, to read their Bible, because we've been trained and our attention has been rewired. One, uh, one writer said a Netflix poll found 61% defined their viewing style as binge watching, which meant two to six episodes at a sitting. I just have to stop there. Binge watching is two to six episodes? Wow, I mean, two episodes? Is that binge watching? Anyways, according to this study, Grant McCracken, a cultural anthropologist paid by Netflix to investigate and promote the habit, reported that TV viewers are no longer zoning out as a way to forget about their day. 
they are tuning in on their own schedule to a different world, getting immersed in multiple episodes or even multiple seasons of a show over a few weeks is a new kind of escapism that is especially welcome today. Another writer said, after watching Game of Thrones for a mere 30 seconds, my brain begins to produce the alpha waves typically associated with hazy, receptive states of consciousness, which are also generated during the light hypnotic stage of suggestion therapy. At the same time, my neurological activity switches from the left hemisphere to the right, that is the seat of logical thought to the seat of emotion, where whenever this shift takes place, my body is flooded with the natural opiates known as endorphins, which explains why viewers have repeatedly told scientists that they feel relaxed as soon as they switch on the television, and also why this same sense of relaxation tends to dissolve immediately after the set is turned off. Yeah, and I, I know this is heavy. This is a bit of a, a woe. It's a woe that I needed to hear. So I'm saying it humbly. We don't do this every Sunday, so I think it's okay to focus on the woes. Amen? Um, but the troubling part is that there's an, ex, uh, there's an acceptance of this, uh, that it's actually okay. And I don't, I'm not so sure it is, the idea of binge-watching or oversaturating ourselves with entertainment. Uh, for example, if I said to you, uh, what would happen if you served the poor for 12 hours in a week? Would that impact or shape you? Yeah, totally. You get a better insight, uh, understanding, empathy. Yeah, totally. What if you took a class for 12 hours a week? If I said that, would that affect you? Yes, totally. You'd gain some new skills, uh, look good on your resume, totally. But if you watched 12 hours of television a week, no, 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 that doesn't affect me. That's harmless. I'm not certain sure it is. Attention, like Mary Oliver says, is the beginning of devotion. I guess the question is devotion to what? And what are we giving ourselves our attention to? Um, I don't have a lot of time left here, but I do want to share two cycles that John Tyson, a pastor in New York, um, I, I read about it and I think this is fantastic. Uh, it's helpful to seeing that distraction can lead to disillusionment. And there's a cycle of distraction, whether it's through, he's talking about media, and then distortion, where our concept and our idea of reality begins to become a bit more hazy. Then discouragement, our lives don't really measure up to it or compare to what we're consuming. And then disobedience. Uh, this idea that when you're discouraged, you're more likely to sin. And then ultimately to disillusionment. And he says, this is a cycle that we can break out of, but we need a new distraction to get out of it. And so he suggests the new cycle being attention, awareness, acknowledgement, appreciation, and adoration. That attention then becomes the doorway to encounter with God that awareness of your true self, of your wrongdoing comes to light. Acknowledgement of God, appreciation for what he's done, and adoration for who he is. Okay, that's a lot on entertainment. I wanna to switch to uh, just briefly here, uh, reputation. 
and I didn't spend as much time kind of teasing this out, but I think there's something here to this woe. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. False prophets in this time spent so much energy puffing themselves up, making them look better than they were, uh, but it was a facade, and beneath the facade was emptiness, no weight in their words. Uh, I like to think that I have a decent reputation, that people speak well of me, uh, but I can, and the dark side is, I can uh, care too much what, other think, what others think about me, that it can become my focus. Uh, social media is a big one, and we can pick up some themes from the entertainment section. Uh, the land of false prophets, where we can often compensate by putting our best foot forward, trying to make our lives seem better than they are. Um, that's all I'll say about that. But I wanna ask, do you have places you can be your true self? As Thomas Merton says, if I find God, I find myself. If I find my true self, I find God. I just wanna leave one more challenge and then an invitation. It's been a lot of information today, a lot of woe, and uh, I'm not apologizing for that. Um, could I have done a better job presenting it? Yes, but I, I'm not apologizing for the focus on the woes. Um, this uh, two slide quote is a good one and a good challenge for us. Again, from David L. Ostendorf. God does not take kindly to half-heartedness. God does not bless us as we maintain the status quo, reaping the accolades of those who hear us and follow us. God does not bless us as we bathe in respectability in the eyes of the world. God does not bless us as we quietly maintain tradition and gloss over and or ignore prophetic voices calling us back to God in the church and in the world. God does not bless us as we protect and build institutions and empires. God does not bless us well off, full, comfortable, hearty and well spoken of. The realm of God rests among those who have nothing but God. Jesus' sermon on the plain, these wondrous yet stark beatitudes jar us out of our faithful complacency. May it be so. So what do we do with all of this? Um, and I think that's the question. What do we do with all of this? What is the invitation? Uh, I kind of just scratched on the surface of some of these things. Uh, but I suggest it might take some reflection and meditation this week uh, to ask what the Spirit is highlighting for you. Maybe some shifts that you need to make in your life, some things you need to cut out really practically. If you want to cut down on distractions so you can have better attention, go through app by app on your phone, if you have a smartphone, and just say, do I need a notification for this immediately? Just go through, do, do a, little, uh, a little check through your apps. What do you need notifications for? What can you silence? Maybe write your own list of woes that are personal to you. Um, because guys, this life is cray cray. Jesus is the way way. And not that I have to end on a positive note, but I want to end where we started in this foundation of love. I want to read this litany of love for you again. And, um, 
and want to challenge us to sit with some of those woes and ask how we can um, then act. Okay? All right. Let's end here and then we'll come to the table. Let me have love. No matter what you have done, not because you go to church, not because you read your Bible, not because folks think you're spiritual, and no matter what sins you've committed, no matter how vicious or mean or vile they were, no matter how calloused your heart and soul have become, God loves you. Not because you are good, not because you do good things, not because you are famous or have served others, but because you are you. To you, God has said yes. God is saying yes. And God will eternally say yes. God is for the you that is you. Amen.